Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to have a different sort of discussion than we usually have. I'm still going to be uh, having an interview with an author, but instead of an author of nonfiction, which has made up the bulk of the interviews we've done over the past year, we're going to be talking to an author of historical fiction. And that author is Eduardo Albert. He's a a Catholic Christian author from England, and he has produced a a magnificent series called the Northumbrian Thrones Trilogy. And in this trilogy, he covers the lives of of three kings of the Anglo-Saxons. Prior to the the Norman invasion of 1066, he covers Edwin, Oswald, and Osbu. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of these kings, this is no surprise, they're mentioned in Bede's ecclesiastical history of the Christian nation, but that's pretty much the bulk of the information you're going to find on their biographies. But I got these books recently, read through them in in, in short order, and they really are an incredible achievement of historical fiction. And what struck me the most about these books is that what Albert does that most historical fiction writers have trouble doing is he manages to actually engage with these men on their own terms, to engage with their Christianity, uh, to enter their world in a way that I find post-Christian writers, secular writers, are increasingly having trouble doing. So these books, I think, are worth a discussion and triggered me to want to have a, a deeper discussion as to how our post-Christian age is affecting our literature and our art, how these things are shifting in the West. So I have an interview with Albert coming out at the European Conservative, where I serve as contributing editor some months from now. But in the meantime, I wanted to have this discussion with him on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Well, just to start off, perhaps first you could introduce yourself uh, to all of our listeners. Well, my name is Eduardo Albert. I'm a writer and historian. I live in London. I was born here. My parents, though, are from Sri Lanka, Italy, which is quite normal in, in London, where most people appear to be immigrants. And I was yeah, born here in the early 60s. I've lived here actually in London all my life. In some ways, writing historical fiction has proved to be uh, my way of connecting with the country in which I've been born, but to which I have no... Um, uh, blood relationship. My parents are immigrants, and I went to a Catholic school growing up. And all the other boys there were also children of immigrants. Um, at that time, it was uh, mainly Italians, Poles, um, or, or uh, Irish, lots and lots of Irish. And it was actually only when I went to university that I actually met and got to know any actual English people. And it came as a shock. I hadn't realized I hadn't known any. And then, and then I married one as well. So that's even more incentive to actually understand and understand on a deep level this country in which I was living. Were you always a writer? Because I want to get I want to get into the series of books that that introduced me to your work, which is the Northumbrian's Throne series. But there had to be a lead up to writing a, a trilogy of that size. We're talking about three very thick historical fiction books. Uh, yes, and that well, I've always been a writer. I think uh, the the my, my earliest memories of actually reading in many ways and the the place I enjoyed going most as a child was 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 the library I still remember the it was a real joy you used to actually take books out you had little cards and you put them into the um, pocket pockets uh, and you got bank holiday weekend you could take out two car two books on the cards and then I could take out eight books rather than four which was uh, was a real joy but um how I ended up writing the Northumbrian Thrones 
was that my my wife, she's one of three sisters, and her sister, uh, Rosemary, is an archaeologist and married to another archaeologist, Paul. And they set up a dig in Bamburgh, Northumberland, to excavate at Bamburgh Castle. And they invited us to go and visit. Now, um, as I said, I was a, L- a Londoner, and I'd actually never been, up, uh, frankly, I'd never even heard of Bamburgh, let alone been there. Typical London attitude that anywhere north of Watford doesn't really exist. So they invited us, um, I kept on trying to come up with excuses not to go, but in the end we ran out of reasons not to go. Well, I ran out of them. And we went up, I think it was 2001, if I remember right, and uh, I'd not done any research on it. So we took the road uh, and drove the village south of Bamber, Sea Houses. And I still remember driving out of Sea Houses up the coast road and then suddenly seeing Bamber Castle there ahead. And it's sits on this huge great lump outcrop of, of the Great Wind Sill, um, an extrusion of dolerite that underlies the whole of the northeast. This astonishing castle that commands land and sea and sky. And it was literally jaw-dropping. And so we arrived and talking to Paul and Rosie and the archaeologists and spent a week there. And it was, it was wonderful. On Bamber Castle itself, if you stand on its ramparts, it's, it's one of the most wonderful prospects anywhere in the world, to be honest. You've got this astonishing beach that at, at uh, low tide stretches seemingly for half a mile out to sea. But then out, out to sea, you have the Farne Islands, which is where St. Cuthbert had his hermitage when he, he was there. The Bamburgh Castle itself was the seat of the kings of Northumbria. And then visible just north, five, it's about five miles north, is um, Lindisfarne, Holy Island where the monks of Lindisfarne obviously have their uh, monastery. Uh, all of these within this triangle of, of, of wonders, both in, in terms of scenic wonders, but also historical wonders. So it was fascinating, but I knew nothing about it. Schooling in Britain when I was young tended to sort of uh, skip over the early medieval period, i.e. that period between the Romans leaving and the Normans arriving. So um, talking to Paul, we... Yeah, and, and Rosie learned more about this period and realised just how how crucial and fundamental it has it was in in English and British history. If you think about it, before and during the Roman period, it was um, Britain was a Celtic-speaking um, race of people. It was actually only in it was in the centuries before the Normans arriving that essentially Britain became England, Wales, and Scotland. They are the fundamental divisions between. Of, of the one island into, into three. The counties were settled, the, the pagan Anglo-Saxons became Christian. All of the you know, common law, I mean, basically almost all the most fundamental and foundational features of, of this country were laid in those times. And we found out, speaking to all, that the kings of Northumbria were amongst the most crucial uh, influences in, in all of this happening. Now. Again, speaking to Paul, he, he told me that um, a publisher had asked him to write something about the great work they were doing there on excavating uh, at Bamburgh, and he said they had not had the time. Well, I said, well, look, I mean, this is fascinating, Paul. Look, you've got the knowledge, um, the writing skills. Let's write it together. So the very first book we, we uh, I did with, was one a collaboration with Paul called Northumbria: The Lost Kingdom, which was a non-fiction book about the history and archaeology of Northumbria. Writing that, I realised that the, the three greatest kings of Northumbria, Edwin, Oswald and Oswiu, they were successive kings. 
And the, their story, uh, their, their history reads like a story. It's a, an astonishing arc of, of, of events with um, uh, reverses, returns, and heroes and villains, and, and also fundamental to the, the conversion of the pagan Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. I mean, you know, just a bare history of it read, read like a story. And I thought, well, somebody must have written these as, as novels, but um, actually looking around, it, it didn't appear that anyone had. So I, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that anyone had. So I thought, well, I would do it. And having already written a non-fiction book about this subject, I'd actually got all the, the research necessary to write historical fiction in place. So that's how I did it. And it really is an extraordinary trilogy for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, I, I found it incredibly educational and very much appreciated the historical note at the back of, of each book as well, because I'm, I'm decently well-versed uh, in British history. And then I, I know the overview. I've got Churchill's History of English-Speaking Peoples. And interestingly, before I heard of your trilogy this year, I finally got my hands on Bede's Ecclesiastical History of of the English nation, uh, which briefly mentions them, but also provides the skeleton uh, of the story um, that you tackle in the trilogy. Just briefly before we move on to discuss the literature, for, for those who are perhaps skeptical that a handful of, of kings in Northumbria well over a thousand years ago might be important, what was the significance of the three kings that you write about? I mean, the most fundamental importance is with the respect to, to Christianity in Britain. If you think about it, the Brit Britannia under the Romans had become uh, Christian, but the um, pagan Anglo-Saxons um, in invaded. Uh, it's an open question as to um, how many, but they certainly took over as the elite of the of the country, and then um, they came in with you know their own gods and de you know thoroughly defeated the uh, the Christian Britons and pushed them out. In fact, the name uh, Welsh derives from the Old English Welsh which is another word for the slave, which pretty much shows their attitude at the time to the um, sort of Christian Britons. So, I mean, the first option is, is why would the victors of a, in such case adopt the religion of the people they vanquished? That seemed to me a, a fascinating historical conundrum as well as a, a theological one. And it's these three kings in which this is played out. And all of them have uh, a different reason to do so. You can see all many of the different aspects of the conversion played out in their lives and their attitudes towards Christianity. So, for instance, Edwin would largely call him a pragmatist. Really, he was he wanted to be on the side of the gods who would give him victory. Oswald was a true believer. He he in exile. He was in exile because um, Edwin. The previous king had actually killed his father, Oswald's father. So he was actually in exile from his own uncle. But Edwin was also his uncle. So you could see it was also um, you know, some very complicated family dynamics that worked. In sense. Oswald, I mean, in exile, uh, uh, visited and stayed on, uh, on Iona, uh, the, the uh, cradle of Christianity in, in Ireland and, and Scotland, and became, you know, true believer there. Uh, in his case, conversion was not political, it was um, heartfelt. And when he regained the throne of Northumbria, the key thing he did was bring over from Ireland uh, monks to found the monastery at uh, Lindisfarne. And what they achieved was 
between them, him, Oswald, and the monks of um, Lindisfarne, is they achieved something that hadn't been done in the, the previous uh, century or so. Is they made a polity, a state that survived the death of its founder, Oswald, when he died in battle at that time, because um, kingdoms, the small kingdoms, were largely bound up with the the, the war band of the men of the king. When the when the king died, I think most things dissolved. But with the monks there in Lindisfarne, Oswald actually created something that endured past his own death. And then with his brother, who eventually managed to claim the throne, he, they consolidated it. And from there, the, the monks of Lindisfarne, with their particular um, flavour of Christianity, played a fundamental role in introducing it throughout the rest of the country. So as I said, you've got their battles, conversion and, and, and an astonishingly complicated and uh, deep, deep family dynamic at work and all of this going towards making England, Scotland and Wales what they are. I mean, for instance, um, the boundary between England and, and Scotland was essentially fixed by the defeat of the, the king after Oswiu, his son, who was expanding into, into um, Scotland. And but was de catastrophically defeated at the Battle of Nectanshmir, and that defeat actually ended, stopped Northumbrian expansion into Scotland, and actually possibly ranks as one of the most important battles in in British history that no, well, very few people have ever heard of. Now, what's very interesting about historical fiction in our in our post-Christian age is that it's increasingly difficult for writers of historical fiction to actually put themselves in the Christian mind when they're writing books. So to give a, a couple of examples, Bernard Cromwell, who I know wrote kindly about your books, when he tackled the period around Alfred the Great, found it much easier to get into the pagan mindset than into the Christian mindset. He treats Christians with a heavy dose of, of cynicism. If you look at, at Conor Gildan, who's one of the masters of his, his craft, at this stage, when it comes to historical fiction, his most recent books on, on the wars between the Greeks and the Persians are just phenomenal. When he tries to tackle a, a Christian figure like Dunstan, also an English figure, the only way that he can describe Dunstan is by explaining him as a sort of cynical trickster who's such an unlikable character by the time that you get to the end of the book that you've learned a few historical facts, yes, but he's almost deformed Dunstan's character into somebody who, who, is, who is inherently wicked. And, and you get to the historical note, and, and Gildan explains this is sort of the only way he could uh, you know, give a framing device for, for the miracles that, that, that Dunstan talks about. Another example actually would be Hilary Mantel's book on, on Thomas Cromwell and, and Thomas More, where, where Thomas Cromwell, whatever you think of him, the historical record clearly indicates that he was a man of deep-seated faith, which is why he was willing to do the things uh, that he did. But what Mantel does in a brilliantly written book with a lot of great research is turn the religious figures and their deep convictions uh, you know, into cynical pragmatists who are always calculating, right? And just sort of like, because faith cannot be understood, it must, must be removed from the equation. And, and a final example relating closer to the period that you're writing about would be, be Paul North's series on, on the resistance, the Anglo-Saxon resistance after the, the invasion of 1066, where he also finds it much easier to put himself in, in the shoes of, of Buckmaster, this Anglo-Saxon pagan raging against the invasion of, of the Christian priests, 
than he does with the Christian priests themselves. Which I, I interviewed him recently for, for, for an article, and he's since converted to Christianity. And he admitted that that struggle that is portrayed in those books was obviously going on inside him at the time he was writing this trilogy. But what did you manage to do so differently than all these other authors did? Because what struck me first when reading your books was not just the historical detail and the quality of the writing, but the fact that you'd actually managed to to take them at their own terms in a way that even the very best historical fiction writers uh, today are not managing to do, in my opinion. I mean, the most obvious reason why I can do it is because I'm a Christian myself. I'm a believer, so I, I understand from the inside what it is to believe. But you've got a good point there, and that's all very well me believing, but how do I actually make that real for an audience, many of whom don't? And one of the ways I've approached it with these novels is to remember that, is to, rem is to, is to remember while writing it, that for the people receiving Christianity there or encountering it at that time, it was the strangest and most counterintuitive doctrine they'd ever encountered, they'd ever heard of. You know, we, the problem with writing Christianity today is, is it comes with 2,000 years of baggage for most people who, who are um, reading about it. What I tried to do there was to write it as, as something deeply strange to the people learning about it. Because I actually also, um, to be honest, a lot of people today, even though they grow up in a sort of pseudo-Christian world, know very little about Christianity. It's fairly, it, it's, it's possible simply by changing some of the, the terms to actually indicate the strangeness of the religion or the uniqueness of it by using non-typical terminology to make it appear you know what it is a sort of you know bolt out of the blue for um, for the people listening to uh, listening listening to this strange new doctrine for the first time so that was that was a key aspect in terms of writing it and writing it for the reader and and I'm I'm, I'm glad you think that that worked in terms of me personally, the, I mean, that was actually because the other key thing about this is it's dealing with a, with the conversion. So you've got, you can look at the attitude of people, Penda, the great pen, pagan king who refused to become Christian and became the great antagonist to, towards the um, Christian kings of Northumbria. And you know, some of the other characters I used, I mean, Koifi, is a pagan priest who's mentioned in in Bead. I had in the in, in the first novel, but then I, for my own purposes, actually kept him on through the other two novels as to try and follow the psychology and the theology and the sociology of a society in transition from from paganism to Christianity, and to show it actually, as it were, working out in terms of that character so yeah all of those were strategies i i, I tried to um, employ to make it both historically accurate but also resonant for uh, a modern readership one of the the things that that your books do do particularly well is a lot of so-called christian fiction is is just sort of like a story with an altar call shoehorned in somewhere 
which which makes it very clunky and unattractive and and and, and I think most importantly it it doesn't feel authentic when you read it because Christianity has been very complicated over 2000 years there's been very very different iterations of it I think in your trilogy you do a good job looking at how different people converted for different reasons and then some of them apostatized because the pragmatism of their conversion didn't pay off you have others whose conversions were very genuine what I'm interested in with with the the craft of historical fiction is uh, it was interesting in my interview with Paul Kingsnorth he described the moment that we're currently in as a sort of pregnant widow moment where Christendom is long dead, the Christian age is recently dead, and we don't quite know what's going to come next yet. And Douglas Murray, there's a lot of, 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 of conservative thinkers that are grappling with this at the moment, and Douglas Murray has said, Christianity is dead, but our culture still dreams Christian dreams. And by Christianity, sorry, I should have said Christendom, because Christianity obviously, of course, can never die. Um, and I find it interesting to, 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 to take a look at the impact of that on art. And, and I do think Connie Gilden's book, Dunstan, Cromwell's books, a lot of recent historical fiction, some of the best reviewed historical fiction, is an indication of the fact that we are, we're so, our moral imagination is so far away from the, the Christian truths that we're getting to a point where we can't understand it, right? So often when people hear Christian, they think, what's your position on LGBT issues? What's your position on, you know, pick the current cultural issue of the day? They're not thinking about the fundamentals of the story that you include in your trilogy or that can be found in scriptures. They're, what they're thinking about is a specific political issue, a specific aspect of the sexual revolution that they want to discuss. And as such, artists increasingly have a hard time conceiving of Christianity outside the political context or actually writing it the way that people believed it. What is what is your take on, on how our exit from the Christian age and our heading deeper into the post-Christian age has affected uh, the art of historical fiction and indeed literature itself? I mean, the most obvious one is what you mentioned there is that it's all become hyper-politicized and hyper-politicized in a very specific and actually narrow, narrow ways. I mean, which to be honest is, you know, thoroughly boring. It's getting to the stage where, how can I put it, you know, you've got your, you know, you'd be hard put to put a, a certain how put it, um, uh, prescribed victim groups to turn them into a vil- villain in the story or things like that. You know, you've got um, you know, people who must be good and must be bad pu- purely because of their external appearances or orientations or things like that, which is just you know, purely rubbish. Um, in terms of, in general, it's, oh, I mean, frankly, politics is so small, you know, I mean, that, that's where the problem is, isn't it? If you turn everything political, you t- turn everything, it's just, it's just pathetic, you know, you know, with religion or, or in, in general, or indeed wider cu- culture, you know, you're dealing with things that go back to, you know, when we, well, our, our fundamentals as human beings and our place in the universe and things like that. And then you're talking about politics and, you know, who gets to go to which bathroom. I mean, it's, it's, it's just petty. So in terms of its problems with, well, the fiction, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been disastrous, really. The, I mean, you know, there are, there is no, there is no great writing at the moment. It's at least certainly the, any lauded bits of parts of literature and so on are just rubbish, really, you know, as evanescent as the culture that's producing them. So as, yeah, so we have a difficulty with that. So as a writer and so on, I, 
I, I mean, I react against that as much as I can. I mean, I, that's why I'm interested in that period and, and, and other ones where you've got, you know, things that are important actually being paid out. I mean, not just um, history, but, you know, the fates of men's souls. You know, ultimately, those are uh, far more interesting stories to write. And, you know, and I hope there'll be more interesting stories to read. Yeah, thinking of an example. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, you know, I'm sure you know the Philip Pullman's Dark Materials trilogy, which I remember reading. Well, I read the first one. I thought it was actually one of the best bits of fantasy writing I'd read. But then as I read the second and the third, I got increasingly, you know, fed up with his 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 polemic on it until in the end he sort of um, sort of shoots himself in his in the sort of narrative foot in order to just make God pathetic really you know so it's an interesting example of where somebody you know a very fine writer actually sabotages his own work because he wants to make a political point and that's what ultimately it will do if you um subsume everything to to that you you, you, know, you just disappear you're down your own the plug hole of your own obsessions and then narrow obsessions that's such a good point because I won't name names, but there's a there's a couple of, of extremely talented writers who have basically ended up sounding like, you know, postmodern prostitutes and their books are more of a revelation into their own particular perversions than anything else. And it, it's quite dispiriting to read. There's one I'm thinking of in particular who wrote a couple of really phenomenal novels where he obviously grappled. He tried to write the characters the way they would have thought, not the way he wanted them to think, because... You know, by definition, when you do, if you were writing certain characters, you can't relate to them. They live in a different age and a different time with different considerations. And he had started off trying to do that. And then, you know, by his, his fourth book, he just sort of gave up and, and the lurid sex scene started to creep in, which I've always found a little bit, a little bit jarring when you suddenly come across them. I'm like, ah, oh, he's sitting by himself coming up with this and writing this. And there's just something sort of uh, exhibitionist and peeping Tom about even reading something like that. I don't want access to somebody else's imagination in that way. Thank you very much. And it's, it's also lazy. It's, it's, it's sort of, sort of very crude. And so I was already, you answered one of the questions I was, I was about to ask, which is, you know, who writing today is doing a good job. I do think Gildan's current series is very good. I think that Dunstan as a novel fails and I think the reason it's a shame is because he's written some very, very good stuff. When you look back, and oh, let's say the last hundred years or so, is there any historical fiction author you particularly look uh, to for inspiration, whether stylistically or the way they approach their characters? Is there a handful of writers that you think are very, very good? Two in particular, though, it's right entirely in different areas. Patrick O'Brien and um, the Aubrey Maturan novels, I think, are head and shoulders the, the best historical novels of, of the last half century and then um, actually very different but George MacDonald Fraser the, the Flashman novels those I have not read have you read either Patrick O'Brien ones yes I have O'Brien I mean George MacDonald Fraser they're I mean, it's unusual he had a Flashman he's taken the the character from Tom Brown's school days the, the Harry Flashman the bully and then imagined him going on to a career throughout the empire in the 19th century and he's a bully and a coward and things like that but it, it is actually extraordinarily funny and you know, completely non-pc in any way whatsoever so i mean those are the two i would rank them as the two best historical fiction writers i've, I've I, I know there is one other it's not quite historical fiction but Fred, frederick buchner who wrote godric frederick buchner is interesting he's a uh what do you call it um presbyterian 
minister. And Godric is his novel of a 12th century priest, East Anglian priest. And actually, that is possibly the single best historical fiction novel I, I, I've ever read. I will definitely be picking that one up because I haven't read that one either. Yeah, I mean, that one, I mean, the language of it is, is luminous. It's, it, he's, and the man was also, I think he's still alive, but he's very old now, but he was a poet as well. It's, it's a short book, it's about 150 pages, but it tackles Christianity, the, the, the difficulty to, it tackles how hard it is to be a saint in a fallen world in a way that I've never, I've never come across better in any book, I think. I mean, it, it's exceptional. Um, and if I wanted to yeah, recommend one book, um, that'd be the one, Godric by Frederick Kushner. The best quote on sainthood from a fiction writer has got to be Flannery O'Connor when she said she knew she couldn't be a saint, but she thought she could be a martyr if they killed her quick enough. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, I very much agree with that, that one, yeah. There's been a discussion recently, including a very long uh, article, and I believe uh, the critic, a British publication, talking about where he says, "Where is where is right wing art now?" Now, political art is is to some a, a contradiction in terms. I think it can be pulled off, but but that's obviously a subject of debate in itself. But as I mentioned earlier, one of the the difficulties is that as we move into the post Christian age. Conservatives, Christians, because of the, they're having a more defiant culture war stand, that they they try to make make things that are too obviously one thing or another. There's too much evangelization, colonization, political preaching, where and they don't allow the art to breathe and sort of speak for itself, right? You know, the idea of Christian art would have been in some ways, you know, people wouldn't have understood that 500 years ago. It was just art produced by a Christian civilization, right? Sacred art would have been a term they would understand. But the idea of Christian art is like, well, what other kind of art is there unless it's coming from, from outside of Christendom? So what kind of approach do you think a Christian artist um, like yourself should should take? Because I, I find that there's a lot of attempts that fail because, and this sounds cruel to say, but they're trying too hard. There's a number of different levels to answering this. I mean, first off, is it's necessary to actually get good at the art. Too many Christian artists, writers and so on seem to think that simply having a, a vocation they've discerned, discerned to you know, spread, spread the message and so on disqualifies them from actually being any good. That's, you know, I mean, that's wrong in all sorts of different ways. I mean, it it's renders anyone reading their products, you know, thinking, well, if, if this is Christianity, it's a, it's, it's a religion for a bunch of dunderheads. And it's also, on a deeper level, it's fundamentally disrespectful to the truth that is at the heart of producing good art. You, if you, if you, if the message, if you're hitting the head, you know, your reader over the head with a message, you're no longer actually producing a story or, or, or an art. You're actually doing propaganda, and propaganda, by its very definition, is the antithesis of art. You know, there you're trying to not open your reader you're trying to close them down you're trying to um uh, make them you know, you know accept this particular point of view and you know it's not that this dissimilar to yeah you know, i mean soviet propaganda or things like that it's 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 wrong in every possible respect but then moving on from that you've got as you say we're uh, as the christian sort of 
somewhat uh, conservatively inclined artists, how are you going to proceed in a culture which is antithetical and antithetical to that? And that's difficult. I mean, first off, you're within publishing and other art-based industries. You're not going to get uh, you're not going to, uh, you know, get publishers and so on. They're, they're reluctant to take on works that, you know, could be seen as Christian and so on. I mean, uh, you know, um, I was fortunate with Lion, but they, 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 Lion, my publishers for the, the these novels, but Lion suffer from being seen as as Christian publishers. So, you know, a lot of their work won't be, you know, it simply won't be looked at by people outside of Christian publishing. So, how do you do it? Um, well, uh, you know, one way is to is to try to smuggle it in. I mean, one of the advantages of of a general of the general uh, growing ignorance of Christianity is people often don't recognise it when it's there. So you know, so so long as you don't actually bash people over the head head with it, you know, and say, you know, this this is Jesus or you know, accept the Lord or things like that, but actually do it as a, a lived experience. You know, or find symbolic methods of conveying the doctrine and 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 the life of a Christian. Then it's actually, I think, becomes relatively more straightforward to smuggle it in. I mean, there's an interesting example of this in that some other work I've been doing because, yeah, I mean, basically to make a living as a writer, I've been doing some works for Black Games Workshop, Black Library, who you may or may not know, but they produce. Uh, tabletop um, battle games with a whole associated universe set in this sort of Warhammer uh, 40 in the universe set 40,000 years in the future where you know factions battle it out humans orcs and various all the horrible aliens and you know so it's a it's a highly developed fictional universe a la Star Wars or Star Trek or things like that and they were like that you know so part of that is they produce novels to go with it and I've done a couple of novels for them now the universe itself is is dark and you know grim dark is the um the, the term they have for it with you know and because it was a um, a tabletop battle game obviously war is its most fundamental feature so and it, uh, it's set in the future with, you know, not even a vestige of Christianity left in, in, in this future, but sort of demigods and demons and things like that. So, you know, there's no Christianity in that. You've got an almost pagan, pagan future, and it might be the closest religious viewpoint, but that's stretching it. So within that context, we are trying to actually work a... Uh, well, obviously, it cannot, it's not explicitly Christian, but the idea that, so for instance, one uh, novel I just wrote recently for them, where the, 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 in the end, the whole thing works on the crux of the novel is not strength of power, which is what it usually is, but actually the weakness of a child being, and then holding that and the, and the mother's love for that child. And that actually swings everything, all the, um, sort of, you know, these vastly impowerful creatures around it. All of that falls because of um, well, one, one child and, and uh, a mother's uh, love, love, for, love for him. And there, I mean, one of Christianity's fundamental messages one of its, is that earthly power is not key. You know, its weakness is, in earthly terms, can be, can be far more well, can change the world. So, you know, I, I smuggled it into, into, the, into that novel. 
in a, in a, certain, in a certain way. So, you know, maybe you can, you know, one can smuggle it in and then I think, I mean, I'm hoping to do this also with, you know, other historical fiction because after all, even the most you know, secular minded person, if they're reading historical novel, must realize that there is, you know, religion has a place to part, did play a part in events in the past. So, uh, you know, one can hope to get it in at least in that way, uh, way there. So I've run off topic, um, Jonathan, in that case, I'll stop rambling. No, 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 that's, this is all very much on topic. And, and I was, I wanted to get to what you were working on next, but I, I was curious, how did you get Con Gilden and, and Bernard Cromwell to read your book? We had gone up to visit Bamber as research and met there Paul and, uh, and Graham, the directors of the Bamber Research Project, because he was A, researching his book, but B, also researching his own family background, which actually has um, deep roots there in Bamber. So, yeah, so I think it was simply because uh, of that, that gave, it, gave, us, it gave us an in. So he was interested in reading it and, you know, wrote some really nice things about, uh, about the, the book. It was Con Eagledon. It was because I, I just dropped it off a, a sort of acquaintanceship with him on Twitter. I think he's not on Twitter anymore, but he he was kind enough to when I I basically just asked him directly, "Would you read my book?" And he was kind enough to to, to do so. And uh, it was great actually. He sent me a private message saying that I had um, when it, I sent him the the last one, Oswiu. He said he 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 started reading it, then lost it in his house, and. It was, spent a day turning over everything trying to find it so he could find out what happened next so um, that was a very nice thing for him to say just to close off since i've i've finished this trilogy i'm always looking for for historical fiction to read and as this discussion indicates it's, it's kind of hard to find fiction by recent authors it's really worth reading so what what comes next you've you've done this trilogy there's so many unexamined parts of 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 the history of the last 2000 years especially there's so many parts that that authors simply aren't interested in tackling what's what's next in your writing career with regards to historical fiction well i've written uh, a new one uh, which i'm currently basically trying to find um uh, a publisher or a agent for and i'm actually quite um, excited about this one it's um set in 1522 for the during the siege of rhodes when the ottomans besiege the Knights Hospitaller on the seat on the, at their headquarters. And it's my aim is to use this as the start of a, about a three or four book series looking at the struggle between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs for control of the Mediterranean with the um, hospitalers and so on. There it seems like you've got, I mean, uh, it's an era where obviously you've got so, it's, it's you know, the whole ancient world broke apart, but you know, you've got in the Siege of Rhodes, you've got basically knights in armour fighting with cannons and muskets. It's the absolute transition between the medieval world and the, and the modern world where Reformation, new worlds, uh, clash of civilizations, everything is happening. And, you know, and you've got some, you know, obviously fascinating personalities from, you know, the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent through to, uh, um, the Emperor Charles V and the and the knights themselves. So I, I've I've written that, and now I'm, I'm trying basically just trying to if, uh, if anyone's interested in publishing a, a novel on that, get in contact with me. So I've having written. I, to be honest, I think it's really good. So I, I'm, I'm pleased with what I've done. Well, I'm very much looking forward to that book. And I guess the final and most important question here is: Where can the listeners uh, get your work? Where can they find the Northumbrian Thrones trilogy? 
the um, new book's going to be is called the, the War for the Heart of the World. And the other aspect that I'm interested, well, two other aspects I'm interested, uh, excited about it is that also I'm looking there at the transition in the, in the Western viewpoint from, uh, there's a point in the 16th century where people were looking for new knowledge, but there was no guarantee, they, they were looking for it in two areas, really. One was science and the other was magic. And there was no guarantee as to which one would prove the most efficacious. And in fact, most people were dabbling in, in, in both and continued to do so for most of that century. So the, it, we're looking there at the, you know, how does one gain knowledge and power in a, in a world where you've got you know, a religious world where you've got you know, God, saints, angels and things like that, but also a, a breaking through into other forms of knowledge. So I thought I thought that was a really interesting aspect to, to cover, particularly in a, in, a, in a situation of a war where within the context of that time, we would only see it purely as uh, contemporaries see it purely as a political conflict, but it was it wasn't. It was a it was a spiritual, a religious, a almost a cosmological conflict. So I wanted to try and put in something something of that. And then, of course, the other aspect of it is that it's a conflict between Christianity and Islam. And I'm interested in that because uh, you know for, for for twenty years I I, I was a, a Muslim. I was a Sufi Muslim. So I've I've got um, you know quite a lot of personal and well, it's not many people who can write about the conflict between Christianity and Islam who've been adherent to both. You know that makes it. I think I can put it to be honest. I'm probably uniquely qualified to write uh, about this. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a book I'm really quite excited about. And also, it's, it's Hero is an Italian, so that's, my mum's really, really pleased about that. So this is a, a standalone book, or hopefully the first of several? So hopefully the first of several, because you've got there an 80-year conflict between the uh, Ottomans and the Habsburgs for who's going to control the Mediterranean, including you know things like the, um, the Siege of Malta and the Battle of Lepanto and many other notable events in history, all all played out against that backdrop of um, reformation and new worlds. And, you know, it's an utterly fascinating era. And uh, one which has been, obviously, we, we get quite a lot. Where in, in Britain, we've we got a complete surfeit of work about the Tudors, but um, we don't actually hear much. I think in the English-speaking world, we don't really hear much about what was going on elsewhere. And um, I, I, I think this is fascinating. And, you know, there were quite a lot of Englishmen as well fighting in the, um, uh, in the, in the Battle of Rhodes and... Uh, and uh, as part of the hospitalers, and I've, uh, I particularly enjoyed it in that the hospitalers were actually sort of the last, the last crusading order amongst. They were sort of the last, last medieval people, last medieval men as the world was changing around them. So that's another aspect of the story that's fascinating. If these ones are successfully published, which of course I, I really hope that they are, is there any other historical subjects that you look at and you think I'd like to tackle that someday? I mean, the one I'd really like to do more is is Alfred the Great um, of, of England, who you know is I know um, Bernard Bernard Cornwall's written about him. I've never felt that Alfred's been done justice in anything that's ever been written about him. You know, he's much as I like. I, I mean, I like I, I really enjoyed Bernard Cornwall's sharp Napoleonic era novels, but I've never really got to grips with his tread ones. And and well, I mean, I've read a number. of number of other novels with Alfred the Great, and they're, they're all, they're, they're, none of them are any good. And you just thought, uh, you know, I thought, 
you know. So I mean, I'd, I'd love to do you know something with with Alfred as it as its at its core. That would be one. But the, you know, there's many other areas. I'm I'm particularly interested in yeah times of change. You know, I mean, in that sense, historical periods can be not they're not progenitors of our own particular time of change but there'll be at least you know how people deal with it would be interesting to see within our own context and also that makes it from a writing point of view easier to bring someone into that that mindset yeah yeah so there's there's, there's quite a lot of other, other areas i, I do uh, other ones I mean, I, I mean, the whole world is fascinating in that respect. <laughs> There's more, it's more a case of what wouldn't I write about? It's just more uh, you know, finding the time, the time to do so. I'd be satisfied with with Alfred, and if I, I would love to put in a request for Ethelstan. Yes, yeah, actually, that's true. He, he's uh, he's one of the most. He's probably. I mean, at least people know have heard have, have heard of Alfred. Ethelstan is 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 just. Um, yeah, forgotten in the wider world despite being you know Athelstan the Glorious as he was known in his time I mean that would, that would be great final question and quite an important one which is where can the the listeners buy your books and how can they how can they interact with you and how can they follow the progress of your work well by reading it um, <laughs> would be the, the, the best way of doing it I mean if they want to contact me personally you know, website or on Facebook Twitter or, or Instagram I mean all those aspects of the modern world which are, i mean one has to engage with them as a writer as it's part of being a business really but yeah i mean i'd love you i'd love you to re- read it and then readers and then tell me what they think about it really and i hope it moves them and I hope they find it interesting ladies and gentlemen that was my conversation with eduardo albert if you'd like to read the northumbrian thrones trilogy which if you're interested in historical fiction i very much advise please do head over to amazon.ca or amazon.com where you can find those books. They're very, very much worth the read. I hope that you enjoyed this discussion. And if you want to check out past discussions, you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcast. It's called The Van Maren Show. We're on Spotify. We're on pretty much anywhere that you get your content from. And you can listen to past shows. You can subscribe to listen to new shows. We very much do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy week to give us a listen. Once again, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.